friends and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I want to thank you for tuning in to Conversations with Consequences today. I'm very glad that you are here. I hope we can give you some conversations with consequences for you. Very good consequences, of course. This past week, we've seen critical race theory being very strongly challenged with a big win uh, in Virginia for Glenn Youngkin, who campaigned on the defense of parents and and their children and their education against uh, progressive ideologies. And just this past week, Archbishop Jose Gomez, who's president of the USCCB, wrote about these movements and the detrimental impact that they have and also how we can respond as Catholics. We're going to turn to Noelle Maring of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Her book is Awake, Not Woke, a Christian response to the cult of progressive ideology. Noel was very hot on this case before it became the trending topic that it is today. But before uh, before that, I'm happy to introduce to you today Dr. Kathleen Birchelman. She is the CEO of MyCatholicDoctor.com and the founder as well. She knows so much about how to find a Catholic doctor, what it means to be a Catholic doctor, and uh, what a Catholic doctor can do for you that other doctors can't, especially safeguard your religious freedom and your conscience. So let's hear from Dr. Birchelman. Welcome to the show, Dr. Birchelman. Thank you so much for having me. I really wanted to have you on because uh, you're a fellow physician. You are involved in something that I think is so valuable, which is in filling up that space that so many Catholics uh, find when they go out uh, to look for health care, that space where the physician, the provider understands our, our point of view, our worldview, and not only understands it, but then wants to work with us to, to not only deliver the care we need, but deliver it in such a way that it fulfills our, our, our real deep personal and human needs. Well, it's our joy because Jesus Christ said to heal the sick and proclaim the kingdom. And he said in Luke chapter 10, verse 9, he said, heal the sick that are there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Well, and so he put the two in the same sentence. Mm-hmm. So, th- so you're saying that the, the spiritual component and the physical component cannot be divided. That's right. It wasn't an accident that Jesus Christ told us to heal the sick and proclaim the kingdom, and he put it in the same sentence. He didn't say heal the sick and call the priest. He didn't say, you know, heal the sick and and if you just do a really good job with your science and medicine, they'll know that you seek the truth. He said, heal the sick and proclaim the kingdom. And so I challenge everyone, every one of the listeners, to ask yourself why. Why did Jesus Christ so specifically tell us to proclaim the kingdom to people who were suffering from illness and needed healing. And you would agree, I think, that right now, in general, medicine, it holds fast to, 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 the, to science, to the ideas of science, but it goes further than that. It, it, it disregards and it pushes out 
from its attention anything that's spiritual or moral. That spiritual and moral component and, and transcendent component, it doesn't want to hear about that in general. There's an attitude that science is better than um, any type of a theological system. And of course, the Catholic Church has never believed this, right? The Catholic Church has embraced the scientific method since the scientific revolution. And we believe that you heal the body, mind, and spirit using a combination of prayer and intercession from the divine and uh, community and love and support to heal the mind, right? And then very solid science on both the social sciences and the medical sciences to seek truth. And at its heart, that's really what the medical sciences is. And that's really what I'm called to do as a Catholic physician. And I'm sure you two would agree that we're called to seek truth by really understanding the truth of science, that we, I, I find God so beautifully in the creation and in the truth of science, which it, it really exists. And when you really, when science is done really well and the scientific method is really adhered to, you can find better ways of healing people. And this is what God intends us to do with our minds, right? I mean, uh, this is this is using the intellectual gifts with which God has bestowed us to create, to quote St. Ignatius of Loyola. And maybe the secularist uh, branch of, of medicine, they talk about this when they talk about the mind-body connection. And then at the same time, they disregard the mind and concentrate on the body. <laughs> For sure. And I think there's a sense that the mind can be 100% understood with, if you, if you had perfect science that you could 100% explain everything. But you don't have to look very far into science to realize that even the best scientists, like Albert Einstein, recognized the presence of the divine. It's, it's really, really very short-sighted to exclude God from the beauty of scientific truth. Yeah, and, and no matter how well-functioning your body might be, if you are disconnected from the foundational truths of your being as, as, a, as a created being that has certain duties, expectations, and, and certain strengths... And even weaknesses that come with that, with our position, right, in, in relationship to God. If if not, if not if that part of our lives doesn't make sense, then our bodies can't function as they should either. There's no method of healing that is going to truly be effective unless you're treating the mind, body, and spirit. You must treat all three. And in fact, when you think of the the three primary ministries of the Catholic Church for two thousand years, our three primary ministries have been sacraments, education and healthcare, treating the mind, body, and spirit. Mm, exactly, exactly that. Exactly mind, body, and spirit. And what do patients find when they go to see a psychologist, for instance, who doesn't have a, an understanding of God, of the transcendent, of our deep need for connection with God, and, and for being in, for, right, for, for, for walking in those righteous paths which he lays out for us? What happens when we go to a psychologist and we tell them, you know, we're not at peace, we, we are anxious, we're worried, we, we're, we fear, and that person can't, that psychologist can't connect with us on that level? For sure. I, I, there, there can be so much more harm than good done, right? So the first thing that I see very consistently is healthcare that is done in the name of bad science, right? So this is people practicing using, you know, practicing off very poor data, they're, when they read a 
article or look at some medical research, whether that's in the psychosocial sciences or in the medical sciences, you know, there's good data and there's bad data. And we all learn in school how to read a study. And the study can be poorly designed or well designed. And that's what really makes a solid clinician is that they know how to read the data. They know if it's good data or bad data and they use the good data and they throw out the bad data. And there's a lot of data out there that's terribly influenced by politics, right? And I think this is one of the ways the evil one works through us is to very quickly erode the relationship with the truth, right? Very quickly, the scientists and anybody start to make rationalizations why it's okay to make an assumption, right? But the beauty of the scientific method and its rigor is it is if you make an assumption, you have to be very clear that you're making an assumption, right? And But uh, there's so much science now that's not really adhering to the scientific method and it's not good science. And that's what I see. I, it still gets published and you still have therapists and doctors practicing using re recommendations that are coming from bad science. And if you go back at the at, and look at that root science, most it, it, it's very clear that the studies were poorly designed. That it's just bad data. And this is how you get therapists that are making you know accusations or, or making rec recommendations that may harm a patient more than they hurt more than they help. One of the things that I see therapists do who aren't clear on on these issues is that they insist on. Um, They insist that the, that the patient will find happiness and peace if they're autonomous, if, if they're looking out for, for number one, if they are controlling the situation and making decisions based on their own uh, will. I find that it takes a Catholic psychologist, for instance, to understand that the, that the real truth of the human spirit is, is relational, that we flourish when we are ensconced in, in these relationships with others and with God, in which we are putting in that part of ourselves that has to be there, and then For receiving, sure. and then receiving also from others and from God, the parts that we need to, to feel healthy and flourish. For sure. It's that give and take relationship, right? And it's, and it's, and it's not um, a business relationship, a healthy, loving relationship involves giving what you have to give and taking what you need or, or, and receiving what you need to receive. And boy, that concept seems to have been lost. Um, so many people feel that happiness comes from autonomy and control rather mm -hmm. than surrender and giving what you have to give and receiving what you need to receive. Yeah, and you know, those of us who've who've made that crossing and, and, and understand how happiness can really arrive, we really know that that looking for happiness uh, f for ourselves out of our own needs and desires is, is always a failure. And it's you want to like shake people, right? And say, stop giving bad advice. Tell that person to go out and give and give and love, and then they will be happy. For sure. There's other, there's of course other areas in which, besides psychological assistance, there's other areas of medicine which are fraught uh, for Catholic patients when we go out into the healthcare sphere and we're looking for, for good advice. Of course, one of those is reproductive care, right? Anything that has to do with, sure. with sexual health. It can be very difficult for a, a Catholic couple to go out into the world and get good health care un under these issues. C tell me some ways that you find that, you're, that, that having a Catholic doctor who understands Catholic uh, morality and, and can talk to that helps patients. So women's health and fertility is a major service line for my Catholic doctor. And for sure, there's a tremendous um, need for 
better and more more clinicians trained in women's health and fertility from a Catholic perspective, not just for Catholics, but because it's the fullness of the truth and because it's really good science. Mm -hmm. And as we just discussed, good science is good ethics and good ethics is good science, right? So there's a tremendous need for the women's health and fertility field, and that is um, one of our major service signs at my Catholic doctor. And, and the stories are, are, are go on and on and on. I mean, I can tell you um, about one of our patients in Hawaii who I saw more than 10 infertility specialists and spent a huge amount of money out of pocket um, uh, for this infertility care and still um, had, had never conceived. And then using telehealth, saw a, a Catholic fertility specialist in Hawaii, uh, in California, um, through my Catholic doctor. So the physician was located in California. The patient was located in Hawaii. They connected via telehealth. The patient was never seen in person by the fertility specialist. She did have an, an OB-GYN locally that was secular that, had, that cares for her. But with the recommendations over telehealth and really strong lab work, which was drawn locally, the patient was able to get the care she needed without leaving Hawaii and uh, within three months time conceived and was now uh, about 25 weeks pregnant. Oh, that's wonderful. That's a wonderful story. And then there's so many times when, when we go to our OBGYN and they suggest things to us that we know we, we shouldn't participate in, like contraception, and they don't give us any other options. They, they don't, they're not willing to work with us and, and to help us. So I'm sure that that's another big field for you. So all of family planning is a, a, huge, um, a huge need. And one of the challenges has been funding it. Um, I always say that we're competing with zero dollars. So in, in birth control, including very expensive forms of birth control like IUD, which are, you know, very, they, very pro-choice um, products. I mean, they, they, they result in post-fertilization effects, they affect a fertilized embryo. And these, um, these very expensive products are covered 100% by insurance, usually with no copay. Mm -hmm. So and when it comes to natural family planning, it's an uphill battle to help people see the fullness of the truth because first your OB guy, your local OB guy is, is not trained or experienced or knowledgeable on, on this topic. And, and secondly, if you do seek natural family planning services, you're probably going to have to pay out of pocket for it. Mm -hmm. And so we've worked really hard to change that, to make Catholic natural family planning accessible. And some people call it fertility awareness methods of family planning. And there are many different methods of doing this. We support all of them. And But natural family planning is now accessible through telehealth and through, uh, through insurance billing. So we bill insurance for natural family planning. And we have also partnered with Catholic Couples NFP, which is an, another national not-for-profit committed to making natural family planning no cost for couples. So they, when you sign up through Catholic Couples and NF, NFP, uh, you can uh, you get all of your training um, through telehealth and without any out-of-pocket costs. Wow, and think of all that terrible side effects you can avoid from years of not, not taking years of hormones, <laughs> for instance, that have so many for bad sure. side effects. Absolutely, and and I think it, it, it's interesting to watch how the science of contraception um, has slowly been revealed. I mean, we just discussed how, you know, science that, that our calling as physicians is to really understanding the science and giving our patients the best guidance based on the best evidence-based data. And if, it, if we don't have good data, if the science is bad science, if the studies are bad studies, then we can't act on that data. 
And the whole uh, fertility care field has been fraught with a lot of bad science for, for too long. And there's so much stuff that's just not explained to patients, and it should be part of informed consent. I think everyone agrees that women should be, be informed of the medical risks and benefits of any medication they take, um, including uh, contraceptive uh, medications. I, I think one of the most under-discussed side effects of many hormonal medications are the psychiatric side effects mm. and, and, and the increased risk of mental illness requiring medical intervention. Especially with oral contraceptives, we see that. And um, I, I think it's not often discussed with patients during the informed consent process. You know, I, I talk to young women all the time and I, I, I point that out to them and invariably they say oh yes that's happened to a friend of mine <laughs> <laughs> or it yeah, happened to me. Right. So it's happening and people don't want to talk about it. It's true. The medical profession doesn't want to talk about it. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm talking to Dr. Birchelman. She's the CEO and founder of My Catholic Doctor. Let me read uh, Dr. Birchelman from your website so that our patients, our, sorry, our patients, our listeners can understand what you do, what your organization does. My Catholic Doctor is a nationwide organization that brings a network of faithful medical professionals to patients through video visits, telehealth, home visits, and office referrals. We can initiate your medical care virtually, order any necessary labs or imaging, and send prescriptions to any pharmacy of your choice. Most of the time, we can take care of all your needs through convenient, affordable telehealth. We practice evidence-based scientific medicine from a Catholic perspective and integrate Catholic spirituality into our care as appropriate to the situation. What a wonderful resource, Dr. Birchelman. Well, thank you so much, Gracie, for the opportunity to, to to present it here on your program. You know, another area of life that uh, is also fraught for Catholics is end-of-life care. Does your organization, does it help people make those difficult decisions towards the end of life? I, I think a lot of people get some bad guidance sometimes uh, from secular physicians. For sure. And we love offering end-of-life services. And in fact, we have a whole palliative care program um, in development now that will open uh, probably within the next six months and we have are just launching our um, dementia care program with a goal of keeping people with dementia home as long as possible although it can also be used for patients in nursing homes and treating people with dementia and people at the end of life with pro-life compassionate care is increasingly very possible you know especially with dementia um, there's a tendency to do very little maybe some medications that may delay the progression but do very little for dementia unless there's a problem, such as a, a, a wandering patient, a patient that can get lost, or a patient that's a risk to themselves, a patient who's a risk of falling. And then when there's a problem, you treat the problem often with sedation, by just simply sedating the patient. And that's not always the most person-centric care. The best way to treat that patient now includes monitoring devices to help you know that they're safe, that have GPS, that set off alarms if they leave a certain region. So for example, we've partnered with a company called CareMate that makes a small device the size of a quarter that sticks on their back and uh, on the back of somebody with dementia and it tells you where they're located so if they leave a region it sets off an alarm on the cell phone of uh, any caregiver and also it monitors heart rate and vital signs so you can detect agitation early if that person's in pain if that person's getting emotional or anxious or upset so that you can use behavioral methods to intervene and and help 
um, redirect and calm that person rather than simply sedating them. And you called, you, you talked about something being patient-centric. Is that more close to the Catholic model than what we might see in, a, in secularist care? Patient-centric is a term that the secularists love to use, and I think it's because it's a term that really means seeing that putting the patient first and not the business part of medicine first. And uh, But I think a lot of secular organizations use the term patient-centric, but I'm not always sure it's true. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, but at our, in Catholic medicine, you don't put your name and face on a website called My Catholic Doctor unless you're really ready to carry the cross, unless you're really ready to put the patient first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that demands a lot of um, a lot of sacrifice from from the patient's loved ones, and and to put uh, right to, to to organize ourselves. I'm I'm dealing now. My my father has ALS, and I'm I'm getting such a, a wonderful course in study in in this kind of. Um, putting that patient first and, and thinking first of, of their needs. Yes, uh, and it takes so much sacrifice off the, for the family. It takes, and, but all of, that, all, all of that is allowed by the Lord for us to grow in holiness. It's a very important process. It also comes with a lot of blessings that we've been experiencing in my family, in my extended family. This, this terrible cross that my father's carrying is bringing blessings to all of us. I mean, it's, it's, it's just calling up a river of grace for, for each member in the family that we never expected. And it's, it's been very rewarding, but, but it's been like that because we have put him first. That's right. That's right. And when you surrender to the Lord, it comes with great blessings. How wonderful that your organization is paying attention to the end of life. I love that. I, I love it more every time. <laughs> I love it more every day as I as we sink deeper into that and find the good along with, with the bad. One, one thing where I, that many people are experiencing across the country more and more that I should bring up that I want to know your opinion on is um, the way young people are more and more identifying as uh, having problems with their gender, with gender dysphoria. I I should bring this up because it's coming it's happening more and more often and and many of our listeners are experiencing it in their children or grandchildren or nieces or nephews and or friends children how does a catholic approach differ from a secularist approach yeah it's a really interesting question greasy thank you so much for for bringing it up the, certainly the catholic approach towards gender dysphoria in the youth is extremely different than the secularist approach but i just want to go back to the science on this, that the Catholic approach is following the best mm-hmm. science. I agree. Right? It's yes. about, the Catholic approach to gender dysphoria is really studying this condition and finding out what the evidence-based data shows based on well-designed studies and then treating the patient with the best medicine available and the best treatments available. That is the Catholic approach. We never deny um, our duty to seek truth using the scientific method. That's what Catholic doctors do. Now, the problem with gender dysphoria management in the secular world is that there's a lot of science that is unfounded, that has very limited data to support it. And I think what we're seeing in Catholic medicine is more people willing to stand up and say, I'm concerned about this data. But the good news is that there's other secular organizations now that are saying the same thing. So really, Catholic healthcare on this issue is on the vanguard of something, that a big correction that's coming, I believe. I think so. And it's not the only example. Another good example of this is the Catholic approach towards infertility, especially um, 
uh, infertility due to endometriosis. The you know approach there's a very specific approach to endometriosis surgery that uses minimal adhesions and um, has been very successful in treating infertility due to endometriosis. And that approach is now being very much adopted by secular organizations. Why? Because it works. Because it's really good science. One of the things that is happening in healthcare that I've seen more and more in evidence is treating patients as clients and not patients. And to me, the distinction is very sharp because a client comes to buy a service and should be pleased with the service they receive and should get what they want. Uh, but a patient is looking for something different from, from their doctor. Yeah, the doctor-patient relationship must start with honesty and integrity. If you have a, another player in that doctor-patient relationship, especially the, a payer, a financial entity, there's a conflict of interest inherently. And more and more doctors are pushed to give patients whatever they want because then if they don't, uh, the the payer is, is going to be displeased with them. And it's very it's very problematic with physicians because you lose that honest, integral doctor-patient relationship where you're giving the patient your ability to read and understand really strong scientific research and then give them the best guidance and the best medications and therapies available. But what would you say to someone who says that the patient should get what the patient wants? That most things are simply a question of choice and autonomy and desiring what they desire. Well, I think in, in that case, the, the patient, if the patient and doctor disagree about what's best for the patient, that the doctor needs to have a very honest conversation about why, from an evidence-based medical perspective, they they can't recommend what the patient desires. And, and then a doctor with integrity is not going to prescribe that medication or that therapy. I really like the way, Dr. Bertelman, that you that you stay with the evidence-based and the science because that that is also my my experience of of medicine that's that's grounded in Catholic uh, moral teaching that it it it's never in opposition to science, which makes complete sense because science is simply the understanding and manipulation of of the reality uh, that God created for us to to exist in. So it can it, it can true. never it, it can never oppo- it can't ever oppose what God's plans are for us. I, I believe. Yeah, science is just the study of God's truth through this. It's just seeking God's truth through the study of his creation. I like to mention that Father Gregor Mendel, the father of genetics and one of the most famous scientists in history, was a Catholic priest. And when we learn about him in school, I find it surprising that he's never referred to or rarely referred to as Father Mendel. Everybody mm-hmm. calls him Mendel. But exactly. I can't think of any other priest in the world that I would address by their last name uh, without using the prefix father. But somehow society has decided it's okay to call Father Mendel just Mendel. Well, it should, it should be uh, Father Mendelian genetics, not Mendelian genetics, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we must insist on it. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Kathleen. It's been fascinating talking to you. You can go online and access all this wonderful care at mycatholicdoctor.com. I highly recommend the website and, and all the wonderful information and care you can receive there from clinicians that have your whole, your whole health in mind, your bodily health, your spiritual health, and your moral health.
Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we are here with Noelle Mering. She's the author of Awake, Not Woke, a book I highly recommend to all our listeners. And welcome to the show, Noelle. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. You came up in my mind and in, in, my, in our producer's mind because of all these interesting things that happened last week with the, the, the elections, particularly in Virginia, but I think that it was echoed across the country in many different states. It feels like the tide is turning like the American people have looked at woke ideology and have decided they don't like it. It's not a passing fad and that they have to act. And knowing all that, I thought we could have you on because you wrote this fabulous book called Awake, Not Woke, A Christian Response to the Cult of Progressive Ideology. Yeah, yeah, the, it was pretty incredible what we saw in Virginia and also, as you say, across the country last week, wasn't it? It, it seems as though the manipulation tactic that has been so effective for so long no longer has quite the hold it used to have. I think people are starting to see through it. I think that's what we saw happening. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that uh, uh, keeps us back, the people who think, uh, I think the people who think the way we think, the way that I think is more aligned with truth than all these woke ideologies, is that we're very busy people and we are engaged in in our lives, uh, raising our families, going to work in the morning, but we need to find the time to understand what's going on. And that's, that's what I like about your book, that it's a way to understand what the woke ideologies are and what is a Christian response to that because I think it is also very important as Christians to respond in a Christian manner. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And that was really my motivation was that it, it it's not only a move, movement I think is unjust, I think it's fundamentally so destructive to the human person as well as to the possibility of of, of a faith or, you know, renaissance of faith in our hearts. It really is a, a competitor to, to Christianity, not um, not an addition to it. And I think so many Christians I see, goodwilled, are trying to incorporate elements of this ideology into their faith because they, they see see that it's built, you know, ostensibly claims to be built around good precepts, like walking with the suffering and the oppressed. Um, but, but, but I don't think that we are always clear on the bait and switch that happens, where it starts with this good precept, but then it, it, it introduces all this ideology um, that really is so harmful and destructive. Um, and I think, but I think people are seeing it more and more now. But that was my motivation. So I just really wanted to help um, people to understand that, not just for their own sake, but for the sake of not helping other people be swept up into this poisonous ideology. So, so what are the parts of, of woke ideology that are that come from a good place that and in a sense come from a Christian place I, w- I would go so far as to say well you know I, th- I, I mean I think that there's just the, it's a Christian precept that we should walk with people who are suffering that mm-hmm. we should try to walk alongside them that we should try to understand where they're coming from that people have all sorts of different um, disadvantages and, and and sufferings that have mitigated you know in some ways um, their ability to move forward in life and that they might need each, we, we need each other, that we fundamentally need each other, um, and that we, we should be good brothers and sisters to one another. Um, that is very Christian. Uh, but but the movement does the exact opposite of, of, of what the Christianity would propose. You know, Christianity would say, well, you know, we need, we need to hold fast to the dignity of the human person as a, as a moral agent who um, has, can control the things that are within his or her control and not um, spend their lives being aggrieved and accusing systems that are utterly outside of their sphere of the moral life. Um, and, and, and then at the same time, giving in to all of the, the, the individual tyranny that we experience when we give in to our, our personal predilections and our sins. So it, it really does further to oppress, far more to oppress the human person than it does to liberate or free, truly free them in the sense that a Christian would propose that he or she would be freed. And when the people of Virginia, for instance, uh, spoke out against this kind of ideology, 
when they elected the new governor of Virginia who ran on this platform against CRT. What were the people of Virginia trying to say? Yeah, I think that they were trying to say on multiple levels that we are no longer going to be manipulated by these, this empty accusation, that we see through it. And, you know, on multiple levels, first of all, they, you know, the CRT, the, the divisiveness and the collectivism of that ideology that was being introduced to sweet ch- children's minds, I think was maddening. But then you had this radical gender ideology being pushed on them to the point where there was a cover-up of, of you know, the, of a rape of a, of a young girl, a minor girl at the hands of a boy in a skirt in a, in a bathroom. And the fact that they covered it up because it, it would be it would hurt their ideology and the, just expo- laid bare i think that the real power hungriness of this movement and then they found pornography in the library right in multiple schools they That's had right. the, like, porno- pornography and so they said you know here's here's the parents saying well you're you're dividing our children based on the race you're covering up a rape you are perpetuating pornography in libraries and and the only thing rejoinder that they had back was it sounds to me like you're a racist <laughs> you know? i mean that must have been so insulting to these poor voters who yeah. were protecting their children and many yeah. of the voters i think um i think mr youngkin took 55% of the Hispanic vote. Yeah, and I think that that's going to be increasingly a trend is that the anti-woke movement is, inc- is increasingly racially diverse, you know, in a very compelling way. And that has to be really hidden up uh, on their side in order because it really exposes a lot of the manipulation at hand. Noel, I wonder if you've read Archbishop Gomez's, it was a speech, but it's been transcribed. It was given in Spanish in Madrid. It's been translated to English. Uh, it's at the National Catholic Register, if any of our listeners want to read it. He gave this wonderful assessment, for which he's taken a lot of heat, unfortunately, and I'm sad for that, a wonderful assessment of woke ideology. And he said that it was America's new, one of America's new political religions, and that it stands as a religion in a sense, and it's taking the place of of other religions. And it has, uh, let me see, I'll read, I'll read from his speech. He says, they provide people with an explanation for events and conditions in the world. They offer a sense of meaning, a purpose for living, and the feeling of belonging to a community. And even more than that, like Christianity, these new movements tell their own story of salvation. Did that ring true to you, Noel? Absolutely. I mean, I, I really think it operates so parasitically off Christianity in, in a way that mimics it, but then is devoid of content. So even the idea that it offers belonging, it's it's sort of like saying how a gang offers belonging, like a family offers belonging. Okay, well, yeah, you might feel a sense of belonging in a gang or in a family, but these are built on utterly <laughs> different ideas. You know, the mm-hmm. gang, you you're belong because of guilt. You belong because because of a threat, you know, if you betray the gang, then you're in trouble, or you belong because you had to in- introduce yourself into the into the family, quote unquote, of the tr- of the gang with some sort of violence or something that implicates you. There, it's the total opposite of what um, the belonging in a family. So, but it is still that sense of belonging. Same with purpose, same with meaning, and same with the salvation. It's not actual salvation. It's sort of you know built around this hope of a utopia where everyone's liberated in this perfect future state that is run by a state government that is uh, we uh, we know to be impossible and ends up in quite a lot of violence. So it has the same ideas and the same kind of human instincts, but it is fulfills them in very opposite ways, in ways that ultimately are unfulfilling. And our redemption, our redemption in this reading, in this religion, comes from being in the struggle, correct? Uh, yeah, our redemption is based on how much we assent to the ideology. Mm-hmm. And how much we make it part of our daily, you know, that that's something that we're working on constantly, either rejecting our own racism, which we may not even know exists, but we take part of because of how we interact with society, or then otherwise um, declaring our victimhood, victimhood if we're in one of the oppressed groups. Is that true? 
Yeah, that's true. And it's interesting because it's really, you know, it's the same action in a way that we do as Christians towards Christ. I want to often struggle every day to grow closer to mm-hmm. him. I want to, you know, get rid of my selfishness and grow in generosity. I want I want to subvert my will for his and unite my will to his. But when you take all of those actions and you put them into um, the context of not for Christ, but an ideology, it really get, becomes grotesque, you know, and, but that is what the movement does. It says, you know, you struggle against things that ways in which you might question the ideology or false consciousness. You have to conform your will to the will of your political betters, the people who know better, or else you'll get canceled. So it's, it's that same thing of mimicking something in Christianity, but really it becomes quite perverse, devoid of Christ. They are atheistic, these these ideologies. They, they, they very much reject um, the the idea of God and the transcendent. Yeah, I think I think that that God ultimately becomes replaced by the state. You know that this um, the the tyranny, the power of the of the government to kind of enforce and coerce the you know utopia to come into being. But it is fundamentally atheistic and reductive of of the human person. And so, good for Archbishop Gomez for this this, talk, this speech. It was great. I think he hit it out of the ballpark. And also, I think it was very brave of him. You know, another thing he said in his speech is that, that because the movements deny God, they lose the truth about the human person. And that made so much sense to me because there is a, there is a part of the human person that, if, that needs to search for the transcendent, that needs to connect to the transcendent. And when we, are, we don't have that connection, we lose, we lose our, um, our understanding of who we are and who our brothers and sisters are. I think that's right. I mean, I think the fundamental definition of the human person is all connected to a relationship to a loving God, loving God the Father. And when we lose God, then we lose the fundamental definition of who we are, and we become defined not by the love of God, but by the hatred of society. And that becomes where we place our battle. And it's interesting because in the effort to eradicate religion, you don't really re- eradicate it, you just relocate it. And so it mm-hmm. becomes something that is, you know, built around this world or um, around an ideology as we see happening now. So Archbishop Gomez, uh, you know, he asks in his speech, what do we do about this? And he says that the church needs to respond by proclaiming Jesus Christ boldly and creatively with charity and confidence without fear. And it's something that the church has to do and has done in every age and for every different cultural moment. What would be the the the, the details of this kind of new response of, of the church to these new ideologies? Yeah, a couple of things. Well, one, I think that because it's built on such a lie, we have to not only proclaim the truth, but we have to really embody the truth. So we have to live as best as we can, as it grow in our sanctity, um, in order to communicate that truth in various ways, not just with our voices, but also with the way we live our lives. Um, but also, I think that we really need to understand what's happening in this movement. I just hear from people left and right about things happening at their parish level or their schools or what have you, where they're talking about racial equity and, you know, without a, a con- an understanding that the word equity implies, you know, so much, there's so much violence and so many corpses that end up from that one principle um, that the Catholic Church really has to reject it utterly on every level. Um, So I think that we have to have that clarity about what's happening so we don't get confused by it. And then once we have that clarity, we can that'll help us foster the courage that's going to be needed to stand up against this because it needs to be courage that is contagious. That you know, a few people standing up against something is the fringe, but a whole host of people resisting something that's a force to be reckoned with, and that's what we need. You mentioned the word clarity, and I think that that's really missing here for many people because the other side, the woke side, they purposely fudge the the terms of the debate. Right. So we said. Yes. So maybe we say in school, we say to the teachers and the administration, we don't want our children taught CRT. And they respond, as has been done to me in my Catholic school, (laughs) for instance, they said, well, we don't teach CRT because that's an academic 
academic um, that's an academic theory that's only talked about in you know higher academic circles. We just talk about how important it is to be uh, sensitive to race. Yeah, or they'll say we're just teaching history, and if you don't want CRT, yes. then you're not going to teach the history of slavery, which is so ridiculous. I mean, every school has, teach, has taught. I, I grew up learning about slavery, and um, you know that we can add more history into it. That would be probably enhancement and that could be good but that's not what crt is crt is an ideology it's not it's not the fact of teaching history it's getting children to start filtering all of their friendships and every dynamic in society through a lens of power and oppression and a power being tyrannical to the point where they can no longer understand um, what true friendship is um, and, and also what true authority is i mean that's one thing that i think a lot of people miss is that this movement is fundamentally against right authority and it supplants right authority with tyranny and and it's very it mim- mimics the devil in that way because the devil really hates hierarchy structures um, first and foremost because of God um, and be, uh, uh, but but the, but that but fatherhood as well you know we have where we see fatherhood in the past now we see only dominance and this is a problem because we're not letting men understand what it is to be men anymore we're thinking that malehood is bad but there's all these elements to it that I think are so destructive and uh, yeah it's CRT and it's the gender ideology it's all of those things combined individually and combined as well it's a power powder keg of poison I think we're giving kids you mentioned that we see it in our parish uh, we, I don't see it in my parish thank God but uh, I know it's out there and I have seen it at school uh, at, a, at our my local Catholic high school and it comes from in my experience it comes from the fact that the the administrators and some of the teachers uh, go off into their and are educated at the at, at our centers of education that are completely taken over by woke ideology and then they come back and that's just the language they speak like they're they've drunk it down they they've soaked in it they've marinated in it and and it's very hard for them to deliver on the catholic ideals that they should be yeah that's right i think that we you know they're they're human people who are being educated in a very particular way that disposes them to not be able to see beyond what this ideology does, and and it's also reinforced in all their cultural experiences, in their movies, and you know, in books and in media. And so this is it's very in some ways it's overwhelming because it is the water in which we swim, but in other ways it's so it's a thin ideology. And I think it's I think in that way it, it is easily defeated if someone's open to the truth. So but but it takes people having those conversations and saying pointing these things out simply and plainly you know without condemnation without but also without fear and we shouldn't feel that fear because this is the stakes are high and the truth is on our side do you think that the christian response to woke ideology is what can save our culture like do, do christians have something special that they can bring to this discussion because i i know that people of all religions or no religion at all are reacting against um against crt and gender ideology as being being uh, first wrong from an unjust and also scientifically wrong for instance uh, but do you think christianity brings a special um, sword to bear here to this battle well, certainly. I mean, I think fundamentally it's a spiritual battle. And so, you know, the, we need to be fighting it on a spiritual level. Um, but also Christianity and Catholics in particular, we are we have a whole history of, you know, the Catholic social doctrine. Also, um, you know, of being an emphasis on, on re- real rational thought and critical thinking. So this is really the purview of, of Catholics. Uh, but also, you know, I think people are hungry for meaning, and that's why this movement's been successful, is because it speaks into that the certain human longings that the Catholic Church is the actual answer for. Um, people want love. They want to feel irreplaceable, you know, and they're, they're, you know, I think that this is such a thing with the transgender movement and just the LGBTQ movement in general, is that they're wanting to feel unique and that their identity is really 
like kind of special and celebrated. But it's all in the context of this lie. Whereas in the Catholic faith, we know that the they, that they are irreplaceable and that their dignity is fundamentally something that that should be respected. They shouldn't be used. They shouldn't be you know uh, made to feel less than other people. Uh, you know, while but but that is that is built around acknowledging that there is real moral law and that there are real moral norms and this is the avenue to freedom. Um, but yeah, so I certainly think that the Catholic Church is something to to offer that is very particular and 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 more and strong. But we, I also think we need to be welcoming all of our friends who are fighting this effort alongside us. You know, who are either not religious or of different religion. That needs to be that fight needs and this resistance needs to be welcoming to to all people who see that this is a lie and want to fight against it. Well, Noelle, I thank you so much for being with us. I, I I'm, I'm amazed, but the time has flown. <laughs> thank you very much for your wise words and and you actually feel me with hope. I like to hear that it's a that it's a thin ideology. I do think that we're we're we've scratched the surface. We've already seen what's bubbling underneath, and and we're ready to walk away. Where can our listeners uh, buy your book? Um, let me remind them it's called Awake Not Woke: A Christian Response to the Cult of Progressive Ideology. Uh, it's on our website theologyofhome.com. We have a shop there. It's also at Tan Books, my publisher, and then wherever you buy books, you can find it. Well, thank you, Noel. Thanks so much for having me. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday, which he will speak to us in apocalyptic language about the end of the world. When he says the sun will be dark and the moon will not give light, the stars will fall from the sky and the heavens will be shaken. He said that then everyone will see him coming with great power and glory, as he sends out the angels to gather the elect from all corners of the earth. He tells us that when we see these things happen, we should know that he is near. And he suggests that we should always be ready, for no one knows the time it will take place except God the Father. In graphic language, Jesus is describing the truth we proclaim every Sunday in our profession of faith. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. But many are afraid of this reality. If angels came in vast numbers right now to announce that the end of the world were coming today, most people, rather than rejoicing, would be screaming in fear. That's not, however, the reaction the Lord wants from us, for it shows a lack of faith and love. Were the early Christians reflected on this reality of Jesus' second coming? They used to cry out, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. They looked forward to this event with great expectation, because it would lead to their full unity and love with the Lord forever. Our attitude is supposed to be similar. We pray in every Mass after the Our Father. By the help of your mercy, may we be always free from sin as we await the blessed hope in the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The attitude we're called to have versus Jesus' second coming is hope full of blessing. I remember once I was preaching a retreat in Los Angeles and an elderly woman came to me asking, Father, is it sinful for me to look forward to my death? so that I can, God willing, be with Jesus forever in heaven? I replied tenderly, but emphatically, No, it's not sinful. Then she said to me, Then why doesn't anyone else seem to have this longing? The reason, I think, has to do with the first part of that prayer I just cited from the Mass, and the link between our being free from sin and our ability to wait in blessed hope for the coming of the Lord. I'd like to illustrate this truth with a story from my childhood. When I was a kid, most days I would wait with eager expectation for the return of my father from work about 4.15 in the afternoon. At about 4 o'clock, our black Labrador retriever would start pacing around the house with its tail wagging. Each of us four kids would take regular glances at the clock. 
Eventually, we would hear the shutting of the heavy steel door of my father's van. We would all hustle toward the back door through which he would come, all wanting to be the first person to jump into a strong arm for a hug and a kiss. We loved our dad and couldn't wait for him to return so that we could be with him. This was what happened, as I said earlier, on most days. There were a few days when I would actually dread his return, precisely on those days when I had done something naughty. And my mother had said, I'm going to tell your dad about that when he comes home. On those days, when 4 p.m. came and our dog began his excited daily ritual, I was looking for a place to hide in my bedroom. I think that experience is a parable for our disposition in front of the return of the Lord. If we really love the Lord, we're impatient for his return so that we can be with him. If we're ready to greet him, it's a time of blessed hope and expectation. For those of us who have done something wrong, however, who have not been free from sin, who haven't been doing what we ought to have been doing with the gift of life, then it's something to which we do not look forward, something even that we can fear and dread. So how do those of us who do fear the coming of the Lord, either at the end of time or at the end of our life, whichever comes first, and either may come in a matter of minutes, become those who await his coming full of blessed hope? The great saints have told us the secret to this transition. It's by living each day as if it were our last, by being ready at all times to meet the Lord so that we will never really be caught off guard when he comes. In Thomas Akempis' spiritual classic, The Imitation of Christ, perhaps the greatest Christian spiritual work after the Bible, he urged all believers, Very quickly will there be an end of you here. Take heed, therefore, how it will be with you in another world. Oh, the dullness and hardness of man's heart, which thinks only of the present and looks not toward the future. You ought in every deed and thought so to order yourself as if you were to die today. Happy as the man who has the hour of death always before his eyes and daily prepares himself to die. When it's morning, reflect that you shall not see the evening and at even time dare not to boast yourself of the morrow. Always be prepared and so live that death may never find you unprepared. Many die suddenly and unexpectedly. For at such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man will come. Strive now to live in such a way that at the hour of death you may rejoice rather than fear. Learn now to die to the world so that you shall begin to live with Christ. Learn now to spurn all earthly things, and then you may go freely unto Christ. Think of nothing but your salvation. Care only for the things of God. Make friends for yourself by venerating the saints of God and walking in their footsteps, so that when you die you may be received into eternal dwellings. Keep yourself a stranger and a pilgrim upon the earth, to whom the things of the world do not belong. Keep your heart free and lift it up toward God, for here we have no earthly city. To him, direct your daily prayers with cries and tears, that your spirit may be found worthy to pass happily after death to its Lord. Kempis' spiritual wisdom, which has formed many saints over the last six centuries, is based on the insight that it's only when we realize that today may be our last day, that we may not have the opportunity to put off the truly important things until tomorrow, that we begin to think clearly and get our priorities straight. We act differently toward people when we realize our last interaction with them might be our last interaction of all. We begin to look at time differently and no longer wish to waste it on diversions. We're not tempted in the same way toward the harsh word or the impure thought or the vengeful action, knowing that that might be the last thing we ever do. We begin to have a far deeper appreciation for prayer and the sacraments in the church. We cease to sleepwalk spiritually and become fully alert to the meaning of every moment, thought, word, and deed. 
Ten years ago, two days before he would retire as the Archbishop of Philadelphia, Cardinal Justin Regali wrote for the priests of his archdiocese an extraordinarily beautiful meditation on Christian preparation for death. He said, preparing for death is the greatest opportunity in our lives. Rather than dreading death as the inexorable occasion in which our life will be taken from us, we can all learn from Jesus, Cardinal Regali said, how to make our death an act of supreme self-giving love. He advised that we focus on two biblical passages. The first is Jesus' words, No one takes my life from me, I freely lay it down. Just as Jesus made his death an act of self-giving love, so we can do the same. The Cardinal continued, Seen in this perspective, death is the moment to give all, to surrender all with Jesus in in union with his sacrifice. When anticipated by an act of loving acceptance, death is the opportunity to say yes to the Father, just as Jesus did, to say yes with all our heart, as Jesus did. That leads us to the second passage, Jesus' last words from the cross, when he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Our self-giving love is a self-entrustment to the Father, something the Cardinal urges us to do every day before we go to bed, as the Church does in Compline. He comments, When the hour of death comes, we may not be conscious. It may come very suddenly by reason of an accident, by reason of a heart attack. There are a million and one possibilities left to our imagination, but this doesn't matter. The point is, the surrender will have been made thousands of times. The Father will understand that each of us had the power which we exercise, the power with His Son Jesus, to lay down our life freely, lovingly, and definitively. Then there will be no obstacle to the consummation of our love. Life and holiness will be ours forever in the communion of the Most Blessed Trinity. Since preparing for death is the greatest opportunity in our lives, Cardinal Regali concludes, now is the time to give all. Let us take full advantage of this month of November and the consequential conversation with Jesus in the Gospel this Sunday to form ourselves this, in this daily habit of self-offering. Each day let us pronounce the definitive yes to God that we want to say at the moment of our death and for all eternity. That's the means by which, when the sun and moon darken and the stars seem to fall, when Christ comes in glory to judge the living and the dead, rather than fear, we will run out to meet him, free from sin, as the fulfillment of the blessed hope, ready to jump into his gloriously scarred hands to be embraced by love. That's the way we make practical the church's beautiful bridal call, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 